All right, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 5 and various other places, but, you know, mostly Ephesians chapter 5. So, you know, uh, the title of the message is Living Life to the Full is probably a better title to the message would have been like Carpe Diem or something like that, Seizing the Day. When you, when you think of that phrase, Seizing the Day, right, uh, you know, a lot of things might come to mind. You've heard it spoken of before. People talk about it all the time, making the most of your time, doing, uh, taking advantage of the time before you. And, and typically when people talk about this kind of thing, about what to do, what to spend your time doing, they have a particular focus in mind about Things like I need to go travel, the, I need to seize the day and, and travel the world and experience life, or I need to go do this thing that I've been putting off and it is something that needs to be done. And, and they talk about this sense of urgency and those kinds of things about things that maybe they feel they're missing out in life on, right? And, and Jesus, or Paul, inspired by the Spirit in Ephesians, he talks about this idea of seizing the day, of of making the most of your time. But we're going to actually see that Jesus' idea of making the most of your time, living your life to the fullest, taking advantage of what's in front of you and maximizing that is very different than what we typically would think is when we say that we want to take advantage of the time before us. So if we look together at Ephesians 5, and we look at verse 15. Ephesians 5, 15, that'll be our main text. We will hop around quite a few places, but I'll make sure we get there together. So Ephesians 5, 15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Right, so Paul, he opens up here, we're in the middle, really, of, 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 a, of a thought that he's having, right, at the beginning of chapter five, and really, uh, the rest of Ephesians, pre- previously, he's been laying out a lot of truth, a lot about what we have in Christ, what's been accomplished by Christ on our behalf, and the things that we have access to, and what all of that means. It's a really hefty portion of scripture, right, you can go through and read it on your own time, we We'll slightly talk about it, but when he gets to this portion, he's talking about the application of these things, and he previously was talking about imitating God in his love, and then right before this section, right before this section, he talks about living in light, which um, is associated with basically what Eric was talking about this morning, living in the truth, right? That the light is a revealer of truth. And so this idea of walking in the truth and how this leads to something. And so we see as he begins his first sentence here in, in verse 15, he says, see then. So that, that, that's a transitional phrase for us, right? It harkens back to everything that was previously stated. So he's saying in light of all of these things, right? And 
like I said, it's a lot in there, so it's kind of hard to like be like, well, what does it say back there so that I can know what to do when it's talking about what's coming later? And luckily for us, the Bible being the best commentary on the Bible, right, it uh, has the greatest summary of the whole Bible in one verse. Um, so if you go with me to 1 John chapter 4, we can have the entire truth laid out in one verse for us, right? Um, and this is really cool as a physicist. So again, I told you last time I was here that the only reason I got a PhD was so I could make physics references. But anyway, um, so physics reference number one. Um, so as a physicist, people love, or physicists do, engineers not so much, we'll talk about that later, but physicists love the idea of bringing everything under one blanket, generic kind of principle, and the more generic it is, the more things that this principle can be applied to, the better, right? When you think about like gravity, you can apply that situation of the law of gravity to many, many scenarios and find out and predict things that are happening, right? And so the hunt in physics, typically, at least for those who are like really interested in those kinds of things, is to find what they call a theory of everything. And if you want something a little bit more precise than calling it a theory of everything, you'd be talking about, if you want to Google it up and, and read it for yourself, not that I might be the only one here who enjoys reading this, but that's fine, um, is, is, is quantum gravity. So this is the idea of trying to match together two principles, two physical principles that really don't make much sense together, right? Uh, one deals with quantum, that's the idea of the governing principles that at least they've discovered so far that do a good job of predicting the phenomena that you see on a very, very small scale. And then you talk about gravity and Einstein's theory of gravity and general relativity, and this talks about kind of large-scale physics, and you don't really ever associate with small-scale physics, but the two, they kind of meet in the theoretical construct of a black hole, and so, and they don't meet up well. <laughs> One, uh, it causes all kinds of problems mathematically, and so, in whole team area of research physicists who are devoted basically their whole lives to trying to reconcile these two things. The area of research is called quantum gravity. Say all that simply to say that there's that hunt for a principle behind everything, or at least in this case, principle behind like laws of motion and things like that, not like psychological laws or things. But the Lord himself gives us a principle that is behind it all a reason, a truth, a thing that we can cling to that undergirds everything. So it says here, this is 1 John chapter 4. <clears throat> if you have the New King James Version of the Bible, just above chapter 4, it tells you this is the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So in chapter four, verse one, he says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world, right? Again, like the truth that we were talking about before, there's a lot of people who will say that they have truth, it's my truth, your truth, right? Eric was talking about that back and forth, but there is one truth, there is one thing. There are many spirits that claim that they have kind of a, an, an exclusivity to that, but there is one thing, and how do we know what it is? By this you know the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. What is this truth that he is speaking of? Right? He's saying, right, let's break down a couple of words here. When we talk about spirit and the use of the word spirit in the Bible, right, we're talking about a governing influence, something that provides power, right? God, through his spirit, right, did these things. As far as like what it like, if it's like ghostly or anything like that, that's up for other people to talk about. But as far as its uses in the Bible, right, Jesus himself, when the disciples were with him and they had just left a town where they were rejected, James and John, being the sons of thunder that they are, they were like, Jesus, shall we call down fire on these people, right? And Jesus was like, no, you don't know what spirit you're of, right? You don't know what's your governing influence. You don't know what kind of thought process you're starting with in order to get to that conclusion that you would think that I, Jesus, would want to call down fire on these people because they rejected us. Like you're, you're missing the spirit of truth there. And so when we're talking about spirit, talking about a governing influence. And so he says here, right, if we, we follow this along, spirit that confesses, right? And when he says confesses, this is not just like an intellectual affirmation. This is not just like, yeah, that's cool, right? Confession is about agreeing and submitting to and recognizing as the true statement, right? And so every thing that is an influence that directs you to be in agreement with the Lord about this statement right here, right? That confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, right? Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, right? First off, he's been already come in the flesh. This is not some other Jesus. This is not a Jesus who came later. This is not Jesus uh, born at a different time. This is the Jesus who is historically spoken of when we have physical evidence and documentation of his life that has been, right? This is that Jesus, not another person, right? And then, particularly, Jesus the Christ. This is not the word Christ is not his last name. We throw it around, we're like, Jesus Christ, you know? It's not his last name, it is his title. What it means is that he is the anointed one. What is he anointed for? He is anointed for the inheritance of the earth, for the salvation of all peoples, to bring and deliver salvation and to bring restoration, right? He is the guy that is anointed for that. This means that anything that doesn't conform or agree to that statement, that Jesus is the method of salvation, right? That Jesus is the way to the Father, it's not grounded in the truth, right? No government, no systematic um, theology, <laughs> no, no uh, ideology, no philosophy, no government program, no educational program. None of these things are salvation. None of these things are anointed by God to bring salvation to man. The only thing that is, is Christ himself. He is the central focus of all of God's plans. <clears throat> And then finally, he says that he has come in the flesh. So, you know, before Jesus was born, all of creation or, or all of humanity was looking forward to the Messiah who was to come, 
right? That if you look at the spirit of prophecy and you look throughout all the prophets and you look at what God is accomplishing when he raises up Abraham and he establishes the nation of Israel, it is all geared and guided toward the central person of Jesus. It's looking ahead towards his coming, right? But we, on the other side of Jesus' coming, we look back to where he was, right? To when he came and this then is our guiding truth and principle that Jesus, the one who physically lived here on the earth, was the one anointed for salvation for all men, that he lived, that he died, that he is the Christ, and that he has come, and that the work is finished, right? Because he has already come, we're not looking forward to a new work for him to do, at least not in the sense of what's necessary for our spiritual salvation. We look forward to the completion of it at his second coming, but we look back to a completed work, which means that we're not the confession here, the agreement, the truth that we're undergirding all of our lives by, right? is that he has accomplished the work and it is not our job to do the work but to receive his accomplished work, right? This is what it is to be in this spirit of truth. It is to guide every step of your life, every decision of your life by this principle that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ and he has already come, you know? And, and to live in light of this knowledge Okay, so that's a quick overview of the see then, right? So in light of this, in light of this truth, right, what then does Paul direct us to do? So we go back to Ephesians. And as we go back to Ephesians, and we see in verse 15, he says, see then, in light of these things, that you walk circumspectly, Right, that you walk circumspectly. The idea of walking circumspectly, when you talk about walking, it's this idea of walking about, of taking a trodden path, right, and, and, and being encompassed and surrounded by it and, and, and going along it all about, everywhere you go, right? This means, right, that if we're walking a path, it's uses outside of the Bible. It doesn't have many uses outside of the Bible, but it's uses outside of the Bible are always about basically just leisurely strolls. And there aren't many, but in, in various poems and things like that, it's uses are about just like a leisurely stroll. Listen, you don't take a leisurely stroll on an un paved or whatever kind of path. You take a stroll through a park when, you, when, it's, when there is a path laid out for you. This is why it talks about being encompassed or being about a path, right? Here's what he's saying, right? He's saying that our walk, we're not trailblazers, right? We're not making our own path. We are taking a path, that has been laid out for us by Christ, right? A lot of times, right, when we talk about what to do with our lives, you know, and I deal with high schoolers a lot, so this is a typical kind of question and answer kind of thing that we have. They say, what do I do with my life, whatever, and you know, the typical thing that I I might hear from a parent or that I might hear from somebody or even advice that, you know, I've heard well-meaning people give is they'll be like, well, what do you want to do, right? You ask a child or something like that, and you're like, what do you want to do with your life, right? But this is the wrong question altogether, right? 
Because it's not about what you want to do with your life. It's about what God wants to do with your life. He has a path for you to walk on. Right? And so Paul, he continues and he says, walk circumspectly. He's not just casually walking on it. When we talk about walking circumspectly, right, he's saying that you walk carefully and with intent and purposefully and you're, you're on that path. Right? Matthew chapter, do, 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 do. give me a second, I'll find it. It's chapter, oh no, yeah. Remain with Jesus, yeah, seven. Matthew chapter seven, right? Real quick, just a quick turn right over there. Matthew chapter seven, verse 13, he says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. This path that's laid before us, it's exclusive, it's really narrow, it's really tight. How tight is it? It's only Jesus. It's Jesus and nothing else. It's by grace, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus and nothing else, right? That is the path to take, that you must be careful and intentionally careful to walk upon. Because I'll tell you what, as he said, there are many uh, that take the other gate, that may take the other way, and it's so broad. There are so many ideas out there that even might sound like Jesus, right? But they're not, right? That there is, there is a path to take that is Jesus, and there are so many other ways to not follow Jesus, right? There is one way to God, and there are many, many, many ways to hell, Right? And so we must be intentional, right? You will not accidentally follow Jesus. Our natural bent, right, our natural bent is rejection of God's truth, right? It took, if that wasn't our natural bent, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come, right? He wouldn't have had to do what he did. But it took Jesus dying on the cross, a demonstration of God's love that was far greater than anything we'd ever seen in order to transform our hearts from this natural bent of being against him to putting our faith in him, right? So you gotta be intentional every day about staying on this walk because if you're not, you will find that you have accidentally taken another path. So he says, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, right? Wise is such an interesting word, right? We throw it around. We say, hey, this person's wise. You're, are you being wise, you know, uh, pray for wisdom, you know? And like we throw it around and like generically you're like, cool, wisdom. But, you know, when we throw it around, do we like actually know what we're talking about? You know, like do we actually know what we mean when we say that we want to do something wisely, Right? So the word wise in other uses throughout the Bible, one of my favorite is when Solomon is going to build the temple for the Lord. It says that he finds people who were wise in goldsmithing, right? The idea is, is that they were skilled at it, you know? And so what he's saying here is that we take this truth that we have, this undergirding truth that Jesus is the Christ and that is our focal point of life, that he alone is our focus, right? And now we have to skillfully 
apply that to other situations? What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ in your life in the context of what you're doing right now? Right? How can I skillfully take that knowledge and use it to talk about how I how I work with my finances, decide what kind of school to go to, decide what kind of job I take. How do I do that, right? How do I skillfully do that? And let me tell you, somebody's skill and aptitude in being able to do something is best demonstrated under difficult circumstances, right? Listen, if it was easy, it wouldn't take wisdom or skill to do it, right? Like, I love basketball a lot. I played it in high school. Played it actually since I was four. But, you know, played it in high school. I'm not a tall guy, right? So, like, when you're not over six feet, you've got to at least be, like, an above-average shooter to be able to, like, make it at any level in, in, uh, in basketball. So I was, like, a relatively good one. So I didn't have the skill necessary to do that, right, to really compete at the college level or really compete at any kind of higher level. But you look at these guys, right, who are all like giants of men, right, they're all like 6'5 and 6'6 or whatever. They're incredibly skilled and talented. And if you took a regular person like me and was like, let me go play for like the Orlando Magic for like a day, Right, it would be one of the most embarrassing situations of my entire life. Where it'd be like, yeah, you don't, you don't belong here, you know, because the skill of something, right, is often measured by the difficulty that it's put under, right. As an easier example, right, I teach physics, and every once in a while I have to give exams, right, and when I do that. It's not so much so that way I can like make children feel dejected about themselves, right? It's so that way I can get a good handle on whether or not they understood anything that I was saying. Unfortunately, what often happens under the pressure of the test is that their skill in applying physical principles to questions that I create for the test is revealed to not be very good, right? And so often the curve is excessive and then they're like, yay, we still made it. I'm like, but you didn't really. Anyway, <laughs> so many people passing physics courses that really shouldn't. But anyway, I digress. Um, <coughs> um, What was I talking about? Wisdom. Um, But all of that to say, right, wisdom in difficult situations. Guys, we have to be willing to be in those difficult situations to allow the Lord to make us wise, to show us how to be skilled in these things, right? Listen, you're not going to know right off the bat, well, what does the Lord want me to do with my finances, you know? That's a situation that you have to go to the Lord with and you have to ask him about. He's not, you're not going to know, well, should I move into this town or this town? You're not going to know these things right off the bat. You've got to take all of these things to the Lord and take his truth and apply it skillfully. Right? And so as you do, right, here's the thing to keep in mind. So he says, don't do it as fools but as wise. And he's going to start clarifying what he means by doing it wisely. <clears throat> and He says, redeem the time. This is that idea, carpe diem, that idea, seize the day. When we're talking about redemption, he's talking about purchasing back, 
right? So something often uh, you can use it as, as in terms of the slave blocks, right? You would purchase some, uh, somebody back off of it or something. Or if it's just a, a piece of land. So in the Levitical law, right, you had methods of redeeming things that were supposed to be for perhaps sacrifices for the Lord. Particularly, for instance, the redemption of the firstborn child, right? You could redeem him with a sacrifice and a, and a, and a payment because, you know, the Lord wants you to dedicate him, but doesn't want you to like kill him and sacrifice him, you know? Um, but there's this idea of buying back for your use, right? The idea of buying back for your use. And so it sounds a lot like what the world would say today, right? That it's like Paul is saying, be wise, buy back time for your personal use, right? That sounds, that sounds a lot like what the world would say. But what is Paul talking about when he's talking about this wisdom and what does it lead to? So before we finish up with those, this little list that he gives us here, we're going to turn to James 1, or pff, James 3, not James 1. We'll turn to James 3 to look at wisdom. We read about it in our scripture reading, James 3, right? James 3.13, <clears throat> and if you look at the, the list here, we're going to first start with the negative, so the things that aren't wise, and then we'll go back and we'll look at the things that are. And so he says here in verse 14, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not lie and boast against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, right? So listen, redeeming a time, making the most of your time does not involve these two things. It does not involve being envious, and it does not involve self-seeking, Right? And that can manifest itself in really subtle ways. You're like, well, I don't generically like, want anything that anybody else has. Right? Or you can be like, oh, I'm, I'm not like, really promoting myself as like, the most awesome person in the world. Right? But it's so much more subtle than that. It's so much more subtle than that. When we're talking about envy, right, you can ask yourself, are you thankful for what's in front of you? Right? Because if you're not, then your desire is really to have something else that somebody else has that God has blessed them with, and you're not thankful to the Lord for what he's given you. you know? And so we got to be on guard for this kind of thing, because that sinks in so quickly. Right? I know I am like one of the least thankful people, least impressed people of all time. I tell Danny all the time, if we ever have children, I need to work on it a lot, because like, I just don't find anything that children do impressive. I'm like, oh, yeah. They're like, I made a picture. I'm like, it's like, it's all right. Like, <laughs> my poor kids are going to be traumatized. You know what I'm saying? They're going to be like, Dad doesn't love us. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> anyway, you can pray for me on that later. <laughs> um, uh, but, but this idea of envy and thankfulness, right? This idea of, of appreciating what God has given you and not worrying about what God has given somebody else, right? In today's culture, could it not be marked by a great sense of envy? Right, that we live in a world where people just complain about what somebody else has that they don't have. Right? That is not the wisdom from above. That is not using your time wisely. That's not buying it back for a good purpose. Right? But then it also says here that uh, uh, self-seeking, right? Which again, you don't have to be all like, yeah, I'm the greatest, right? But are you... Are you looking for, out only for your own interest? Are you looking only to get the next better job so you can look good? Are you looking to be spiritual? Jesus covers this in Matthew 6. Are you looking to be spiritual only so other people can think you're good? It's still self-seeking, 
right? You're still looking to the world to give you something. And here's the thing, if you're looking to the world to give you something, you're missing out entirely on what wisdom is all about. Because what we're going to see is that wisdom has nothing to do with you taking for yourself. Absolutely nothing to do with taking for yourself. Before we jump back in James 3 there, turn with me to 1 John, and we'll go to 1 John 2, and this will help us wrap up kind of the ideas that are in the world about what's wise, about what's, what's the proper way to apply truth, or really the principles that they govern themselves by. Right? And it says in verse 15 of 1 John 2, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he clarifies what the things are that are in the world. And he says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it is not of the Father, it is of the world. Right? The lust of the flesh. Right? When we talk about lust, we're talking about an inordinate desire. Right? All desire is really meant to be fulfilled in the Lord, and it becomes an inordinate desire when we seek to fulfill that thing apart from the Lord. Right? And so, listen, Jesus says again, Matthew 6, right? he says, seek first the kingdom of God, and he will provide for you all of those physical needs. Right? That, that need to satisfy your flesh or to... to to sleep and eat and all of these things, right? And have, have, have protection and all those things. Those are met in the Lord, right? But if we divorce ourselves from the Lord and then we live only, we live only to satiate those bodily pleasures, right? To live only for food and for sex and for even for comfort and for comfortability and for convenience. If we live only for those, right? That's the lust of the flesh, right? To just satisfy and satiate your bodily appetites apart from the Lord. He also then says the lust of the eyes, right? And this is, this is again, an inordinate desire for what? To see beautiful, wonderful things or to experience beautiful, wonderful things. How many have you heard <clears throat> that I, when somebody's like, oh, I just need to travel the world to go see all of experience life and get to know myself and find out everything that I need to know that as if traveling the world and seeing everything would somehow enlighten them and bring them the fulfillment that they're looking for, right? Listen, I've known too many people who do that and I'll tell you what, they just come back more confused than when they left, right? Because it's not satisfied. The beauty that we need to see is the beauty in the Lord, right? The, the wonder of life is in him, you know? We don't need to go and, and satisfy our desire to be and, uh, with beautiful things and experience wonderful experiences by solely seeking to do those things and seeking the next thrill and seeking the next adventure. God is our adventure, Right? He is our joy. He is the most beautiful thing. And then this other thing here, he says the pride of life. Right? Again, satisfied in the Lord. The value of your life, it, the understanding of the value of your life is met in, in Christ. Right? Do you know how valuable your life is, guys? It's so valuable that Jesus paid for it with his own life. Right? Jesus, who we just talked about, was that central figure of all of creation. Jesus, who made the heavens and the earth, right? who sits above it all. Right? Daniel, in his prayer, was talking about how the Lord doesn't even view time in the same way that we do. Right? In, in, in 
Second Peter, right, he says, you know, with the Lord a thousand days, a thousand years is as one, and, and, and one year is as a thousand, like it doesn't matter to him, right? He's so separate, unique, and holy, right? But he is mindful of you. That's how valuable you are. You know, but if you don't have the Lord, right, then you have to create value for yourself, right? You have to imagine value for yourself and, and pridefully assert that you are worth it, worthwhile, valuable, good enough, all of these things, right? It's back to that self-seeking back in James, Right, the idea that you need to promote yourself and that, that you're the most important thing. Right? Listen, you're not the most important thing, God is, right? But guess what? God thinks you're the most important thing. You know? You don't need to be prideful about your life. You need to accept God's love for you. <clears throat> so he comes so all of these things, not wisdom. If you spend your time in these things, it's not wise. There's no wisdom there. You're not redeeming the time valuably. Value, wow, I can't say the word valuably, whatever, with value. <laughs> um, in, so back to James, what's the key? What's the secret? What, is, what does he say? He says, let him show by good conduct how that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. In the meekness of wisdom. The conclusion of all of these things, right? The, the, the principle that we started with, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and that he has accomplished the work of salvation on your behalf, it leads you to this one conclusion for life. As you look at Jesus' life and you examine it and you receive it, it leads you to one thought. Live in meekness, right? And meekness, right, it is not weakness, Right? And meekness is separate slightly from being, simply being humble in this sense. Not like in an, an absolute sense, you can usually interchange the words, but in this sense, it is different. You can be humbled, right? We call that being humiliated, right? When somebody forcibly reveals how lowly you are, but you cannot be meeked, right? Somebody, somebody thinks it's funny. No, <laughs> the one joke I tell. Anyway, um, uh, got to get Jim Cattleman up here to tell more jokes. But anyway, um, you can't be meeked. You can't be forcibly made meek. Meekness is a choice. Meekness is about, ta- about you knowing that you possess all the power or whatever, whatever it is that you have. You, you possess all of this, something that you have, and choosing not to exercise that, but rather to be put beneath somebody in order to raise them up, right? This is meekness, right? It is a choice of the will where you, in full knowledge that God loves you, in full knowledge that you have all things in Christ, right? That because of that, your choice is to serve, Right? Your choice is not to lord it over people. Your choice is not to brag about the fact that Jesus loves you. Right? Your, cho- your choice is instead to spend your time serving. Serving for what purpose? To lift them up. Lift them where? To where you are in Christ. To bring them to Christ. A life spent serving. 
So we turn back to Ephesians and we'll, we'll, we'll see Paul gives us the tools we need to make the most of our time, to live the absolutely best and most meaningful and most fulfilling life that you can live, right? And he says, redeeming, this was back in, in Ephesians 5, redeeming the time because the days are evil. He says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The very first thing to making the most of your time is you have to spend time knowing what the will of the Lord is, right? You have to spend time knowing what the will of the Lord is. That means you need to spend time in prayer. That means you need to spend time in the word because how are you gonna know what the will of the Lord is if you don't know the Lord himself, right? We've got to spend our time getting to know what the will of the Lord is for your life, right? It's not you getting the nice new things or anything like that. It's not you being envious. It's not you satisfying your lusts. It's not those things, right? In 1 Peter 4, he says, you know, we have spent enough of our time doing those things. We've wasted enough time just chasing after things for ourselves, right? Instead, Paul says, know what the will of the Lord is. You know, there are a bunch of passages that talk about it, but one of them in 1 Thessalonians, right, he says that the will of the Lord is your sanctification, right? Part of the will of the Lord for your life is that you look more like Christ and less like your sinful self, right? It's time spent understanding the will of the Lord is time well spent, <clears throat> He continues on, he says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So there's a parallel passage to this. There's a parallel passage to this in Colossians 3 that uses a lot of the same phrases that we're going to walk through here, but it replaces a couple of things. And one of them is right here when he says, be filled with the Spirit, and then it gives this list. That same list is in Colossians 3, but previous to the list it says, being filled with the word, right? Here's the thing. Time well spent, again, is time spent being in the word. You will not be full of the spirit simply by sitting around meditating, right? No incense burning, no yoga, nothing like that will connect you to the spirit, right? What will connect you to the spirit is being in the word of the Lord, right? Time spent there, you know, because we need the power. You know what he puts it in contrast to? He puts it in contrast to drinking. He says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, right? When you think about drinking and going on to drunkenness, what are people often doing when they drink? They are looking for an escape, right? Their life generically to them is something terrible that they just can't really tolerate, right? They don't like their job, they're having uh, trouble with, uh, you know, something at, in, in, their, in their marriage or in their family, and so they're like, I just want to forget, just want to escape for a moment, you know, have some kind of relief for a moment. Look, look what he, he replaces that with. He replaces with spirit. We don't need to escape our problems, we need power to face our problems. You see the difference? We don't need 
to reject and pretend that there is nothing evil about the world around us. We need the power of God to face them with all of his strength given by his spirit by being completely devoted to his word and applying his word to all of these situations. He continues next in his list. He says, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Again, in Colossians 3, in addition to simply speaking and singing, he mentions teaching and admonishing by doing these things, by singing songs, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So what's he getting at? Time well spent is time in fellowship. Time in fellowship. Guys, we, we were not made to be Christians alone. You were not made to follow the Lord by yourself. You need every member of the body of Christ to exhort, to encourage, to correct, right? To comfort. We need each other. Just previously in Ephesians 4, right, Paul talks about the role of the pastors and teachers and apostles. And he says, what is it for? To equip the saints so that they, they plural, not just like a single person, but they plural may attain to the fullness of Christ. Listen, I will never be a great representation of Christ by myself, Right? There are too many things about me that are unchristlike. Too many things about me that are imperfect in 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 the way that they are and they will be perfected and completed when he returns or calls me home. But together we make a better picture of Christ. Right? Listen, I might not be able to help everybody. I certainly can't help everybody. Like somebody calls me up and says, they live all the way on the other side of town, right? And they're like, Justin, I need help, right? With this thing, what do I do in this situation? The best I can do in that situation is to be like, yeah, I'll pray for you, but I can't actually physically get to you there. But you know what? If there's a brother or sister who's over there with them, they can be a physical representation of Christ to them at that time in that place, right? But furthermore, right, when we come together, you have an experience with God, I have an experience with God, right? Same God, but we live different lives. Same God, but we do different activities. I need to know what God is doing in your life because that's gonna encourage me, and that might help me for when I face the same situation. Second Corinthians 1, he talks about that the God of all comfort who comforts us, right, that he comforts us, that we might be able to comfort others, right? The idea being that what God has given you in your life isn't just for you to embrace and be like, hey, this is cool, right? But that you can give it to somebody else when they need it too, you know? We need each other. There's a wonderful song that I love <clears throat> from King's Kaleidoscope. Um, it's called One Blood. It's about us being united. And one of the things at the end of the song that he says here, right, he says, I still, so this is talking about people in general uh, uh, in the church. And he's saying, I still need you, Father, trusting in this great unknown. 
I still need you, mother. Comfort me until we're home. I still need you, sister. Tell the truth, dare to dream. I still need you, brother. Strengthen me, help me see. Right? I need you in my life to help me in my walk. We need each other. You know, time in fellowship is time well spent. Continuing on, the next thing that he puts on his list here is giving thanks for all things to God, right? We kind of talked about this already, that a spirit of envy is not one that is, is in accordance with wisdom, right? And the best way to replace envy is thankfulness, right? Guys, you can be thankful not just in everything, Right? But you can be thankful for everything. That might sound crazy, right? You're like, well, thankful that, like, you know, like somebody died? Like, I don't understand. Right? Listen, God doesn't just save us in spite of suffering or in spite of sin. Right? He saves us through suffering and through a world that's filled with sin. He took. He took our sinful actions, the things that we intended for evil, and in his infinite wisdom, flipped that to his advantage and brought about his good purposes because of it, right? Listen, the rejection of is- the Israel's rejection of their Messiah that led to the crucifixion of Christ is not a good thing, right? But... God used it for something good. He used it so that salvation would be open to everyone, right? Every situation you have, you can thank the Lord for, right? To make it more practical, because nobody really, you know, lives up to like Jesus's standard there. They're like, oh, that's cool, Jesus did it, you know, (laughs) Matthew Henry or John Wesley, can't like debate on who actually said this, but anyway, he said this concerning himself being robbed, a situation that most people, you know, wouldn't be thankful for, you know? Um, And he says this, let me be thankful. First, because he never robbed me before. Second, because although he took my purse, he did not take my life. Third, because although he took what I possessed, it wasn't much. And fourth, because it was I who, ro- who was robbed and not I who robbed, right? Like, even, I love that last one, right? Even in, like, the worst circumstance, you can be, you can still say, Lord, thank you that I remained faithful to you and wasn't faithless, you know? Even in the most dire circumstances, you know? In the parallel passage in Colossians 3, if you look there, it all, it, replacing this idea of giving thanks, it also says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do in the name of the Lord, right? Here's the thing. What he's saying is time well spent. It's time doing things in the name of the Lord. But you know what's really cool tied to this thankfulness that we can be thankful in all things? Notice he didn't say like, be a pastor for the Lord, be a worship leader for the Lord, any of those things. He said, whatever you do, whatever you do. Here's the thing. Like I said, physicists love generic things that apply to a lot of things. This principle of, of God being 
uh, of Jesus being the Messiah and of guiding our every step, it applies to every action you can take in life. You don't have to be a pastor to be doing something for the Lord, right? Everything you do is beautifully ordained by God for you personally to be able to glorify him in what you're doing, right? There is not a meaningless action in your life, right? Raising your children, taking a stroll on the beach, right? Spending time with friends, going to a mundane job. None of these things are meaningless in God. You see, we have the beauty of a God who, though he is high above and seated in the heavenlies, he condescended and met us in the most mundane, ordinary places. He didn't come as a king. He came as an everyday Joe Schmo, right? He turned what was ordinary into the extraordinary, right? Your life is extraordinary not because of what you do, but because of whose you are, you know? So you can appreciate, love, and value every moment of your life and use every moment to glorify him because every moment is important and valuable. One more quote. I don't usually quote so many things, but I was like, yeah, I'll just, I'll just throw in some quotes. Oswald Chambers, one of my favorite, uh, uh, he, he, write, he wrote the devotional, uh, My Utmost for His Highest. If you haven't read it, it's a great devotional to work through. I love it. Read it on um, pretty much year round. He says this, it is, inbre- it is inbred in us that we have to do exceptional things for God. You know, I, I, I once thought, thought of that myself. It was the idea of like, I want to do something great for God. I want to be like Billy Graham or something. You know, like a million people. That would be awesome. You know, nothing less, you know. Um, <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> thank you for laughing. <laughs> we see how ridiculous that thought is. But anyway, um, but he says, but we have not. We don't have to do exceptional things for God. We have to be exceptional in the ordinary things. To be holy in the mean streets amongst mean people right? We bring the extraordinary with us, right? As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, treasure in the ordinary, right? All of your life can be used to glorify God. Finally, he ends, if we go back to Ephesians, he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Right? Again, this harkens back to what we spoke about, about wisdom. It's characterized by meekness. Meekness is that idea of submitting yourself, willingly submitting yourself. Right? Guys, oh, the, the, the best life lived, the life that the Lord says is worthwhile, is a life spent in service to others that raises them up to the glorification of God, right? This is the, the best use of our time. And you can do it in so many ways, right? We just said every moment of your life can be used towards this end. It doesn't have to be, you know, something here or there, being, the, the, being a missionary, being a pastor, right? Every moment of your life spent 
in the meekness of wisdom, looking at another human being and concluding that because you have the love of God in your life, it is the best course of action for you to meet that person's need so that way they can see Jesus clearly, right? That is time well spent, right? I'll close off <clears throat> with Second Corinthians, uh, with uh, Titus 2, with Titus 2. Just, I'll just read that passage and then we'll, we'll pray. And I think the worship team is already making their way up, so... So, Paul, right, just went through all of that, but Paul, as he often does, either he does like an incredibly long run-on sentence that you have to like break down for like 20 weeks at a time, right, or he condenses um, all of uh, theology into like one one phrase, and you're like, well, thanks, Paul, you know, (laughs) Um, but he says here, uh, this is the condensed version, uh, of everything basically that we, we've spoken about. Titus 2, verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people who are zealous for good works. Right? May that be true of us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that Jesus is the Christ, Lord, that none of us here are the Christ. Lord, we thank you for your finished work on the cross. Lord, help us to walk in that, Lord. Help us to, to not deviate to the left or right, to, to remain focused, Lord. Life is so distracting, Lord. Help us, to, help us to remain focused upon you. And Lord, give us all the wisdom that we need to apply that truth to our lives, Lord. Let us spend our time knowing your will, learning your will, being consumed by just knowing you more. Lord, fellowshipping with each other, And above all, Lord, that we would be your servants in this world, Lord. There isn't much time. Lord, help us make the most of what you've given us. Lord, we thank you, we love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.